It had got to the point literally where I would open my text editor and my brain would go blank. At that point, I think it was a no-brainer that I had to go freelance. That's the only way I can make a living at this is if I'm not in this corporate system. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today, we have a special guest, Ayush Nwetia. He runs Radioactive Toy, a one-person web and application development shop. He wrote the Rails and Hotwire Codex, which covers how to build an app for web, iOS, and Android. He's a member of the Bridgetown core team, and he's co-host of the podcast Just a Spec with Jared White. Ayush, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. So there's a, a lot to get into here, various areas in terms of your writing, your presenting, your own development projects and freelancing. I'd love to first take a step back and just talk about how you got into development and, and also how you found Rails. Right. I studied computer science university, which was a pretty natural choice for me because I was pretty good with computers growing up. I don't know. I just had some kind of instinct to know how to fix them, which was weird, but that kind of led into pretty deep interest in the topic, but I never really learned programming because it's not something they teach in school in India where I was born. But I always had an interest, like I'm so interested in computers, but I don't know how to program them. It's like the natural next step for me. So when I moved to the UK for university, it was pretty much a no-brainer that I was going to study computer science. And yeah, career in programming was, again, the next natural step from there. So I graduated university in 2014 and I got a job an agency here in London called AKQA. What kind of agency? It was basically like a software shop, but they just tried, they call themselves an ideas and innovation company, which sounds really naff, <laughs> but they basically built software and did like design for huge brands. Like Nike was one of their biggest clients. I spent most of my time there working on a project for Dyson, like really, really big brands. And the first year of that role that I got was just a graduate program. So I spent three months in one department and then something else and something else. So I did a little bit of iOS, a little bit of Android, some DevOps, some backend. I was like all over the company, basically. And then eventually settled in a role where I was doing both iOS and Android development. I was in that company for a few years, then I moved to a fintech startup called TransferWise, now known as Wise. There I managed to get a specialist iOS only role because Android is not good for my stress levels. <laughs> <laughs> I sense that. <laughs> yeah, things have been thrown against the wall in my frustration with Android. <laughs> Yeah, and a couple of years after that, I just, I just really burnt out. So took some time off, kind of retrained from mobile to web using Rails. And that's where I am these days. So going back to uni, what was your goal when you were studying? Or did you want to create software, desktop, web, mobile? I hadn't really thought that far ahead, to be honest. I just wanted to build software, see where that went really. It wasn't until I think a couple of years into that first job when I was doing iOS and Android that I realized that I didn't really want to do mobile. 
I kind of wanted to do web because I realized I still wanted to build user-facing software uh, because what kind of motivates me is more the product side of things rather than the technical side of things. I wanted to build stuff that people actually use. And I wasn't enjoying the walled garden of mobile. Uh, iOS and Android are quite restrictive in, in what you can do. And also the other part of it was, if you don't have any server-side skills, if all you know is mobile development, the scope of what products you can build on your own is fairly limited. Like you look at any app on your phone, it's going to be talking to a server, right? Right. Unless you've got like a timer game, that, <laughs> a free sale game or something. Yeah, exactly. It's really restrictive what you can do without a server. So again, because I like to build products, I'm like, yeah, I'm not really sure where to go from here. That makes sense. I always think about the web as sort of like the default, but then if you go mobile, that's like more specialized and unique or like that's not necessarily the promised land, but if you go there, then you've got like this niche set of skills that you wouldn't want to leave. So it's interesting to hear you talk about like doing mobile and then thinking, I actually want to do more like web and server side stuff. That's just interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, I've kind of always followed things that kind of interest me. I can't do stuff that's not interesting and mobile just wasn't interesting for me anymore. So you say you retrained during this time away. You kind of retrained on web with Rails. What did you do to retrain? First thing I did was I think what is rite of passage for every Rails developer, which is the Ruby on Rails tutorial by Michael Hartle. Uh, so I'd kind of been on the periphery of Rails for a while, ever since university really, because a lot of the infrastructure around iOS is in Ruby. So just chatting in iOS circles, Rails was something a lot of app developers were using for their backends. So I'd bought a copy of the Ruby on Rails tutorial like ages before I opened it. And the reason for that was I wanted to let backends up. When I'm programming eight hours a day in my full-time job, I was like, come back home. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be doing this anymore. So when I decided to take the sabbatical and decided I'm going to transition to a web developer, Rails was almost a no-brainer for me just because I'd kind of done a little bit of Ruby. I love the language. I quite like the philosophy that Rails is built on, like stuff that you've heard a million times, like convention over configuration, blah, 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 all that stuff. So yeah, I did the Ruby on Rails tutorial and then I built a blogging app, which I still use for my blog, but I'm going to decommission it soon because the code is shockingly bad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, that was basically it because I learned by doings. I kind of did the book as a way to get started. Okay, now I know enough. And then I had to build something to really understand it. So I built this blogging app and that was like almost my, my that's where I leveled up really by doing that. And on the back of that, I managed to get my first freelance client because it was completely by luck. It was just on Twitter. Someone I knew had retweeted someone saying, I'm looking for some Rails freelancers. I replied to him saying, I've built this app and I'm a freelancer. How can I help? And I think just having an actual product in your portfolio just helps so much because I had like a 30 minute call with him and that was it. He sent over a contract and got started. Yeah, I totally agree. It's really, really helpful, especially if you haven't been doing work in that area already that people can reference other clients that you've served or something like that, having an app that you can show that you built is like really substantial for helping build credibility. Even now, I, even though the blogging app is kind of 
dead in the water. I run another app called Scattergun, which is kind of on pause. Just because of EU VAT laws, I need to rewrite the billing system. But that's literally the only reason. I, I still use it for my own mailing lists. It's basically just a privacy-focused mailing list app. And even that just helps so much with the credibility side of things. Like now, when I reach out to a client, I can say, I've written this book, I run this app, I do this, I do that. Can we work together? How can I help? And it's just, I think it gives a lot of confidence even to the client. Like I've been working with the same client for a just under a year now. And I signed with them without before I'd actually had a call with them. So I got in touch, we exchanged a couple of emails, I sent over a contract and was like, let's get you to sign this. We'll sort out a time to chat next week or something like that. And I think that would not, that would have never happened if I didn't have a solid body of work that I could show. And I was going to add to that. I feel like recently through a lot of people we've interviewed on this podcast and just other people that I've met, I've just been really impressed by seeing like your products that you've built. And I know I'm not probably not the only one, but I have a ton of side projects that I've started, but never finished. And having a product that you've actually finished, you've published, you have a customer, at least one customer or two, you know, a complete product is such a big deal. And not that completing it is hard, but it's the thing that a lot of people don't do. Yeah, it's tricky. For me personally, it took a lot of self-management to kind of do that. I kind of, so I have a colossal ego and I kind of play that against myself to the point <laughs> where if I start something, I have to be sure I'll finish it because if I abandon it, it'll annoy me. And if I feel there's a possibility of me abandoning it, I have to back myself into a corner so that I have the only way out is to finish it. Like when I wrote the book, I knew that was going to be really hard and I knew there was going to be a, a, a distinct possibility that I would just say fuck it and give up in the middle. So what I did was I terminated my client contract and I said, <laughs> oh, wow. okay, I'm going to go full That's time amazing. on this. I'm going to go full time on this. I have enough runway for like six to eight months. Either I finish it or I go broke. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that is the ultimate way of backing yourself in the corner. Yeah, exactly. And it worked. I like the first couple of months, I was taking it really easy. I was just being lazy. Uh, and then when I started seeing my bank account dwindle slowly, that kind of lit a fire under my ass. And I'm like, yeah, well, I better get going with this thing then. Let's talk about the book. You had gotten into Rails. You're starting your freelance work. When did you decide to write this and why? What led you to say, oh, I could do this. I could write this book. A little bit of insanity, I think. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> I took all of 2020 off to learn Rails, basically. I got my first client in Feb 21. I think the idea for the book kind of popped into my head around the middle of that year, of the middle of 2021. Because at the time, Hotwire was still pretty new. I think it came out December 2020, if I remember correctly. And they were pushing Turbo Native a little bit more when Hotwire came out, because I'd been aware of Turbo Lynx Native, which was like the predecessor for a while. Going back to my mobile days, I just found it to be a very fascinating way of building mobile apps. But because I didn't really program in my spare time and we, I couldn't really introduce such a big dependency into a, a huge app that was my main job, I never really got to play with it, but I was aware of its existence. So when they started pushing Turbo Native a bit more, I just had an idea that I'm in a unique position where I've specialized in iOS, Android, and web at different paths in my career. 
that's a pretty unique skill set. Not a lot of people have done that. There are a lot of books that teach you how to make mobile apps, a lot of books that teach you how to make Rails apps. What if I kind of put the two together? That was basically the inception of the idea. I've made a few notes of that idea in my notes app, and then I just let it kind of sit in my brain for a bit. And I think it was towards the back end of that year that I actually started writing it, maybe around November, December time, I think. And yeah, went full time into it Feb 2022 because I realized I wasn't making a lot of progress juggling with it, juggling client work and the book side by side because writing's very intense, very draining. So I couldn't really do my client hours and then write. It was too exhausting. What was your goal with the book? Were you just hoping to make money with it? You're hoping to learn more? Were you hoping to gain some like publicity? And, you know, get your name out there or all the above? All of those things, pretty much. So I think the the primary objective was the old cliche that I want a book that I wish I had when I was learning Rails. Because the Ruby on Rails tutorial was awesome to get you off the ground. But I struggled to find resources for the next step after that. So that was my aim is like, after the Rails tutorial, where do you go? So that that was where I wanted to position the book. I also wanted it to be just a manual for myself. Like I refer back to it all the time because there's only so much you can keep in your head. There's stuff you don't use every day, like stuff like action cable, action text is not things you would use on a day-to-day basis. And when you do use them, it's quite easy to be like, wait, what the hell's going on here? But I just go back to my book and and read what's going on because uh, I've kind of described what's going on under the hood precisely for this reason, so that it's a manual for me to refer back to. So those are like the selfish reasons. Apart from that, obviously, there was the business side of things where I knew if I could do a good job with the book, it would make money. And it has. It would be a great marketing tool for my freelancing. And it would just be a good way to kind of get my name out in the community. So all of the things you said, Jess. And I think it's done pretty well in all those things. So I'm quite happy with that. I'm about halfway through the book right now. And just for background, it's very good. It's walking you through the creation of an app called Piazza. And it's like the web, the Rails web app, and then an iOS and Android app as well. So you're working through the code to create all three together. Yeah, it's very impressive. Like it's so like it's so much. I am curious. Did you build Piazza first and then write the book? Or did you write the apps along with the book? So it took a bit of time to kind of find the correct process. And the process eventually I settled on was I would write the code for a chapter on a branch, and then I would go back to the main branch and start writing the chapter and then copy paste code across from my branch into the main branch. So kind of step by step through. Yeah. So I I kind of kind of did it chapter by chapter. I didn't build the entire app at once because I I felt that it needed to be a bit more natural, make some of the mistakes that you would normally make while building an app. But I also kind of made my own life a bit more difficult when late, like further down the line, I found out I should have done this differently. And in some cases, that's fine where you can say that, oh, we did this like this way, but Here's why we're changing it. But sometimes the narrative just didn't fit with that change. And I would have to go back, make the change, the previous part of the book, and then try and make sure the continuity was fine all the way through. Continuity is so hard. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about that a little bit. Like if, at some point I'd love to do like a rails video course or something. And I've thought, would I like build it along the way and then potentially get into places where I've painted myself into a corner and have to back out and find a different direction. And then other people watching along are like, what, what's he doing? <laughs> or do I do it all ahead of time, but have to do so much work just to even get to the point where I would start creating parts of the course or something. If you had to do this over, would you do it differently? No, once I settled on my process, I was very happy with it. So just chapter by chapter, write the code first for that chapter and then go back and write the chapter and copy paste code across. The advantage I found to like copy pasting the code across was just it helped a lot with the code snippets that go in the book. Because obviously when you finished a feature, files look a lot different than they were like halfway through. And when you're walking someone through, it has to kind of look like natural you can't have code snippets that contain code for stuff you haven't covered yet. You don't want chapter nine's code in chapter eight, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now you've done a nice job with that. Definitely noticed that. And so you, you started writing that book in Feb 22, you said? Yeah. So that's when I started writing it full time in Feb 22. Before, I think I'd written three chapters before that, but the first three chapters were just quite easy. It was just getting started a little intro to Hotwire. And I think what was chapter three? I think it was just a user model and signups and stuff. So they were the easiest chapters to write. The real meat starts in chapter four with the authentication bit. That was when I kind of started working on it side by side with client work. And I'm like, my brain cannot handle this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so sense. yeah, Feb 22 is when I started chapter four and went full time and I launched the book. I opened pre-orders in September 22 and launched the book finally in December which is about four months or five months later than I'd planned. It is a substantial book. This is not a short ebook or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got a lot bigger than I'd even planned. Like I had to remove <laughs> so much stuff from the scope, like, and I still managed to top 900 pages. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's impressive. I haven't been through anything that covered iOS and Android development. So that's all new to me, but highly detailed and really good coverage. And on the Rails side, which I have a lot of experience with, even there, like the technical details are great. So it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's really amazing to hear you say that because yeah, I put a lot of effort into just like how things work because a, a lot of tutorials would just be, here's the code to make this feature work, but there's no discussion of pros and cons, no discussion of what's going on under the hood and stuff. And that kind of stuff was, was really important to me. So I think a great example of that is like the active storage chapter, which you could teach active storage in a blog post, but I spent, I think, half a chapter on it just because teaching every, like, what are the tables it creates? How does direct upload work? How do you customize direct upload? How do you do this? How do you do that? And a lot of that was selfish because I knew I'd need it in the future and I needed something back to refer to. But I think those are the things that most tutorials don't cover. And that was how I was going to kind of set myself aside from the rest of the market. Can you explain when you decide to write a book, how do you actually do that? Did you use certain software? Did you decide to self-publish it? And did you have any help with copyright editing? Technical editing, all that, yeah. Self-publishing was a no-brainer for me. I'm far too much of a control freak to let anyone tell me what to do. I wanted to control everything from top to bottom. Just stuff like the cover of the book should tell you how much I cared about every detail. The cover artwork was done by my friend, Adrian Valenzuela, who also did the branding for Bridgetown. So yeah, I just gave him a brief of exactly what I wanted and he knocked it out of the park. And 
Like when you're working with a publisher, you're not necessarily going to have control over those kind of things, right? So I wanted control. So self-publishing was the only way. Yeah, getting the actual PDF and EPUB to build was way harder than I thought. The amount of time I spent bike shedding on that is unreal. It was a huge source of frustration for me in the early days, just trying to get a tool chain up and running. Because So to start with, I actually started using something called soft cover, which is what Michael Hartle uses for all his eBooks. And it's written in latex. And I didn't know latex. I was kind of winging it really. And then I think in January, my friend, January 22, which is after I'd done three chapters, my friend sent me something called ASCII Doctor, which is a Ruby-based tool chain. And the markup that you write your book in is called ASCII Doc. And it spits out a PDF and an EPUB at the end of it. And I spent a week basically fiddling with it, trying to get it working. It was also quite fiddly, but it it was a lot more obvious how I could customize it. Simple things like changing the font, changing font colors, star, basic styles. Here and there, it was a lot easier to kind of do with ASCII Doctor. So I managed to get a tool chain up and running with that in a week. And then I had to basically port all my previous writing from Latex over to ASCII Doc, which is a pain. But yeah, that's the tool chain I'm using. I would have liked to kind of extract the project setup and the rake tasks and stuff. I've got into an open source project and share it but it's on a very long to-do list of things to do. So it's probably not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Yeah. But yeah, that's how I kind of got the PDF and EPUB. I'm pretty proud of just the book design in general, like just the way the fonts and uh, colors and stuff work. I spent a lot of time on it because again, I just, I need, if you're charging like 99 bucks for a book, you kind of got to give the value prop for that price point. I didn't really want, anything to be half-assed. Everything had to be as good as it could be, in my opinion. So yeah, that's how I got that stuff. And then what was the last question? Technical copywriting. Yeah, no, I did everything myself. I would have liked some help. I just didn't know where to find it. So yeah, I would write a chapter and then come back to it a few days later when my brain was fresh, because you can't edit something right after you've written it. So I think every chapter got three passes of writing. So yeah, I did it all myself. I think I realized that actually rewriting is the most important part of writing. And towards the back end of the project, I got a bit faster because what I would do is the first draft would just be a brain dump. It would be a complete shit show in terms of writing quality, but it got everything out of my brain into the text editor. And then I would go back and polish it and polish it again and polish it more. Because while I'm quite proud of the writing in the book, not a very good writer. So I had to work really hard to get up to that level. I really love that idea. I can't remember who said this. It's some famous programmer, but they say you should write some code and then just throw it all away and then just start over after you've had that brain dump of how you would plan it all out and then redo it. And I've always thought that was pretty cool. And I've always thought that if I write a couple paragraphs or a page or whatever, and then just sleep on it and come back the next day, it's so refreshing to see it and you can see the mistakes you made and how you can restructure it to make it clear. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it's quite funny how sometimes when you're quite deep into a problem, that's when you need to take a break the most. And that's when you're most reluctant to take a break as well. Hmm. <laughs> so True. remember a couple of years ago, I was really hitting my head against the wall with this problem. And the postman rang the doorbell. So I went down, got the parcel, came back up. 
the moment I sat down at my desk again, I'd solved the problem. I'm uh, like, yeah. I should know better than this. Like <laughs> I've been programming for like seven years. I should know better that I needed a break. And then one last question about the book. When you decide to sell it, is there anything special that you have to do? Do you just zip it up and send people to order if they purchase it? Or do you have some sort of license and validation process? How does that work? No, it's just on Gumroad. So I've just uploaded the files there. So okay. there's a PDF and EPUB and all the source code files. They're all on Gumroad. So anyone, when they buy the book through their Gumroad dashboard, they'll be able to download all those files. There's nothing, there's no DRM or anything like that. Yeah, it's just flat price. Although I'm thinking of introducing like a team price when I do an update because Strada's out now, right? Which is quite, which I need to update the book with Strada. So and rail 7.1 as well so that's in the works so i'm kind of i'm kind of playing with the idea of like just two price points exactly the same product just two price points and it's completely up to the consumer which one they choose i haven't made up my mind about it yet but it's an idea i'm playing with what kind of reception have you had from readers so far it's been astonishingly positive like i was expecting a bit more negativity there hasn't been any i was expecting criticism, at least some criticism. And there just hasn't been any, which has completely blown me away. Like I've had so many people write in just saying how useful they found it and things like that. And every time I receive one of those emails, it just makes my day because yeah, I really put so much work into it. And it's so great to see it when it actually has helped people. Yeah, it's it's been amazing. Can you tell from sort of the people that have bought or people that you've talked to, is it mostly Rails developers or is it people that are mobile trying to get into Rails or and maybe what level of experience? I don't know if you can generalize that way, but I'm just curious. Yeah, it's hard to generalize because people all across the spectrum have bought my book. Like I see, like when sales come and I see some email addresses and like, bloody hell, I recognize that person from like Twitter or something. Like I can't believe they're buying my book. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. But the conversations I have on email and Discord and stuff is usually with junior Rails developers. I don't think anyone who specializes in mobile has bought the book. Just wouldn't be useful for them because if you specialize in mobile and you never touch Rails, this book's not going to make a lot of sense to you because you need to understand Rails. Uh, Are you from what I've read in Codex so far? you stick pretty well to teaching conventional rails. Are there any departures that you tend to make personally, like in your own work that you chose not to express in the book? Not a lot. Most of what I teach in the book is exactly how I write rails apps. I think the only exception would be I tend to have a view component library in most of my projects. And it was on my list of things to teach in the book. I had to remove it from scope because like I mentioned earlier, I don't teach anything like at a superficial level. So to teach view component, I would have to go deep into what it is, why would you use it, what can it do, and then get on to using it. And the book was already just getting too big. (laughs) Like there was no pressing need for it in the app that I teach in the books. I was like, let's just forget it. I think what's called vanilla rails is pretty much just good object-oriented programming for the most part. I think sometimes people can, I am generalizing, caveats, disclaimers, all that. I think sometimes people can just overcomplicate simple things. And sometimes it can be a crutch for not writing code properly or not thinking through code properly. I kind of see that a lot in my consulting work. 
I see a lot of Rails code bases where just the basics aren't done correctly. And I think sometimes people look at fancy patterns and think it's some kind of silver bullet, but it's not just think about stuff from a good object-oriented programming point of view and everything that Rails gives you out of the box, in my opinion, is just fine. Yeah, it's so easy to think when you try to apply a situation that you encounter in an app and you think, oh, my situation is different. So it calls for a different approach and you can't really fit it into that box. But usually in hindsight, it fit into the, the Rails way and you probably didn't need to do these extra things. Yeah, exactly. And I think there are some misconceptions as well that have kind of just taken quite a strong hold in the community. And one of them, I think, is that the models folder is only for active record models. You can completely just create Ruby objects or Ruby classes and put them in the models folder. And I do that all the time. And I think some people just haven't been taught that skill. You launched a book in December and you said it's been doing well, but what have you been doing between December and today? Just freelancing. I'm focusing on my clients because like I said, I think it was about six months completely off, maybe a bit more, I can't remember now. There's yeah, so literally no income. So I burnt this huge hole in my <laughs> bank account. And then in all my infinite wisdom, I went to New Zealand for three weeks in February this year. And I'm like, it sounds awesome. Back, <laughs> it was all, it was, it was an amazing holiday. It was, it was yeah, <laughs> thoroughly enjoyable, but yeah, I came back from New Zealand at the start of March and I'm like, why the hell am I so broke? And I'm like, I just thought back to what I've been up to for the last year. I'm like, yeah, that explains why I'm so broke. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, okay, no side projects. Don't muck about with stuff. Just freelance till the end of the year. So I've just been focusing on my clients. Everything else is on hold. And did you go back to your previous client or did you pick up new clients? It was a new client. I was initially planning on going back to my previous client, but they didn't have work because they were like a software shop. They didn't have any work for me. So this was, it was actually quite a, an eye-opening thing for me. It was around November 22. It was before I'd launched the book where I was on the brink of running out of money. And I'm like, okay, this last stretch, I need to start contracting again and write the book side by side. Otherwise I will actually go broke. And that's when that work from my previous client didn't materialize. And I was stressing out quite a bit. And I just posted all to all the forums that I was in saying, I'm looking for work and he has my body of work, blah, blah, blah. And in like three or four days, I'd got two contracts, one short term and one is the client I'm still working with. That kind of gave me a lot of confidence just in my freelance business. But yeah, I'm still working with that same client that I started in December last year. There is really something to freelancing, that feeling of if you're an employee, you sort of feel safe. You have a sort of safety of this regular paycheck. If you have a contract, you have a safety about this regular paycheck. But when you're coming to the end of a contract or finishing up a freelance project and you've got, you're seeing this gap a month or two down the road and you don't know how it's going to be filled. Another thing that can give you confidence is knowing that you can go to places and find more work or that you have the sales and marketing skills to, to find that within a reasonable time period that you won't be waiting six months, you know, like beating down doors to find something. And that is like being able to have that confidence is like really helps with the mental and emotional stability. Like as you're coming to the end of contracts or when you're seeing gaps in your schedule. 
Yeah, it is something just I've had to learn because uh, I'm still figuring out this whole freelancing thing, to be honest. I won't even at it for a couple of years. Yeah, that's why I found your talk, Friendly.rb, so interesting is just because it was like, oh, it's not just me who feels scared about all these things. And it's just <laughs> useful to hear someone else say that. <laughs> I guess speaking along the same lines and going back to the book too, but how did you plan on like marketing the book and how did you market yourself as a contractor? So with the book, it was, I knew word of mouth and social media was going to be critical. I hoped that product was good enough that people would just start telling their friends. And to to some degree that has happened. But in terms of like just a strategy, I kind of took inspiration from music, which is what I do quite a lot. And I just thought, okay, so like when my favorite musician releases an album, what does he do? So leading up to the album release, he will release some singles. After the album is out, he'll do some press and then he'll go on tour. So like, how do I bring that into like my little field here? So leading up to the book launch, I started posting blog posts that had been extracted from the book on my blog and on dev.2 as I sharing them around on forums and stuff like that. Then the book launched. After the book launched, I got invited onto a couple of podcasts to chat about it. I was hoping to get invited on some more, but I didn't do any actual work of trying to get on some more because I was so knackered by then. So that part of the plan didn't quite work out because I was hoping to do a few more podcasts. That would be analogous to a press tour in my mind, but I was too tired to actually do the work for it. And then as an analogy to touring, I wanted to give conference talks. So I submitted a talk based on some stuff in the book to every Ruby and Rails conference this side of the Atlantic, with the exception of RailsConf, which was in America, but I didn't get accepted to that. I got two yeses, which was Rotslov and Friendly.rb, and I presented the talk at both those conferences. So that was basically my marketing plan. It wasn't anything fancy. It was just try to get the word of mouth going. I didn't do a very good job of it because I was too tired by the end of it, to be honest. Probably could have done better. I, not, not probably, I could definitely have done better with it. But the book sold pretty well, even with all these missteps. So I'm not too disappointed about it. In terms of marketing myself as a contractor, I haven't really. Again, like I said, I the first big client I found was off Twitter. Complete luck. The second, I've only had two long-term stable clients. And the second one was, again, just posting on forums and stuff. I kind of hope that my body of work speaks for itself. I know that's not enough long-term, but for now, I'm just thinking of filling in the black hole I burnt into my bank account last year. (laughs) (laughs) After after that's done, I'll start thinking about more long-term strategy. I totally get that. I mean, you just took some really big swings. Yeah. Huge swings that you knew would exhaust you financially, you know, energy-wise, however that is. And then with the hopes that that would sort of level you up in this new ability to like have wider audience, a wider exposure, more opportunities, more credibility. So you just built a bunch of stuff for yourself, but now you've got to build up that energy level and the financial side as well for a period of time to kind of recover from that. Yeah. I totally get that because... I'm right there with you. This It's been a lot of this year for me. So I get that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, this probably won't make a lot of sense to people who haven't seen your talk, but that Princess Bride analogy that you mentioned in, in your talk at Friendly.rb, it's like, yeah, that's exactly like how I feel. <laughs> Is that talk live or? 
released not yet? yet not yet but it's coming it is coming yes okay. and they've released one little teaser from the conference and it was so well done like the video quality like their videography team was like stellar i was very very impressed so i'm very excited to see the talks coming out i think they're gonna be great that's what i love about the consulting and the ability to offer consulting is that it can support you in so many ways. And we've talked to numerous guests here who have bounced between starting businesses and had to go back to consulting and start a business and then lean on consulting. And it just offers so much flexibility. And I love your analogy with the musician. And you say your marketing plan wasn't that fancy, but I thought that was pretty well thought out. I love that. I'm going to be thinking about that one. Yeah, Yeah. that was great. (laughs) And Jeremy and I, I think I've talked to you about the analogy of indie developer or indie rails independent and sort of thinking of that along the lines of an artist or a musician. It's not that you're completely on your own, but you're the one sort of leading the charge and Yeah, the musician analogy fits nicely into that where there might be a team of people. It's not necessarily just you doing everything, but it could be. You could have a PR agent or you could have like an agent working with you setting up things or you could have a recording company that's helping you release whatever it is, but it could also just be you. Now, going back to your conference talk, this was your first time speaking at conferences this year, right? Yep, that's right. And how was that experience? Did did it leave you wanting to do it more? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So always quite enjoyed public speaking. I'm quite thankful for the fact that it's never daunted me. I've I've got a natural ability for it, I think. Yes, I enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. I was a bit nervous with this particular talk just because in past talks that I've given, I don't need to memorize a lot of stuff because all the key points are always on the slide. And if I know my material well enough before the talk, what's on the slide is enough for me to deliver the talk. So this particular one, there was a huge story aspect to it when stuff like at times this thing on the slide was just a picture because I was telling a story and I had to remember when the photo changes as well. So I had to hit those points. And that made me quite nervous because I'm not the kind of person that can rehearse a talk myself. Like I just couldn't get myself in the right (laughs) headspace to do it. I think I know what you're talking about. Like if I do that and I'll try to tell a story and then I'll find myself like three slides ahead of this. And I'm like, oh, I was supposed to transition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I was quite nervous. Just ran through the talk in my head as much as I could. The only times I presented it out loud was to an audience, but I think it went pretty well. It did. In every talk, I forgot some stuff, but I didn't forget anything critical in any other talks. Nothing that felt like a gap that I can think of. It was usually just a silly joke or something that I forgot. It wasn't a critical thing, but so I I would have liked to remember it, but I can live with it. So do you have any plans to speak at upcoming conferences? Or I guess the schedule is really still being made, isn't it? Yeah. So I have a, a vague idea of a talk for next year, probably something around authentication in Rails because there's some new stuff in Rails 7.1. Authentication, I feel, is something that people are just afraid of and people just pick device just because, not because they have a a strong case for it. So my notes are literally, I think, three bullet points at the moment. So it's it's a very seed of an idea. Whether it'll even turn into a talk, I don't know. I'll definitely be submitting CFPs next year. I don't know what it's going to be on, but it'll be on something or other. 
probably not RailsConf just because getting there is too expensive and I need to stop spending money. <laughs> I hear uh, that. <laughs> my expenses next year, I'm just looking at my plan for travel next year and I'm like, how can I make this work? I'm going back to India in January for a month to see my family because I haven't been back since before COVID. And when I was in New Zealand at the start of this year, I'd gone to watch cricket. I'm a big England cricket fan, so I'd gone to watch England play cricket. And while I was there, I just fell in love with the country and I'm like, I got to come back. And England are going back at the end of next year. So November, December next year, they're back there. I'm like, I want to go back. I want to go back to New Zealand to watch England play cricket. And I'm like, that's three months of the year. I kind of play. <laughs> yeah. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> but the joy of being a freelancer is that stuff is at least possible. Like mm-hmm. if I was working yes. full time, that would just not be possible. I could just give up thinking ever making that happen because I'm freelance. Okay, it'll be expensive and I'll be broke, but I, I can do it. I would actually love to go back to something sort of a little bit earlier. I'd seen this tweet of yours from last year and you were detailing your work timeline. And you said that in 2019, you got fed up of the career ladder and quit. And I was wondering if you would just be able to share like what led to that change in direction. And now four years later, reflecting back on your freelancing how do you feel about it? Yeah, that's a great topic to chat about because it covers a lot of things that people don't talk about. I think it's getting a little more talked about these days, things like burnout and mental health. So I'll start at the beginning. So as I mentioned earlier, first job at a uni was 2014 at a company called AKQA. I was born in India, so I was an Indian citizen, which meant I was here in the UK on a, a work visa. And that work visa is tied to the company I work for. So I can't work for a different company on that visa. And if I want to change jobs, I need the other company to sponsor a new visa for me. And part of that process is the new company needs to advertise the position for 28 days in places Huh. to prove that there's no one in the EU who can do that job. They have to prove that they can't find anyone in the EU who can do that job before they can hire someone oh outside gosh. the EU. Oh, wow. And that process can be gamed quite easily, but it's just a lot of hassle. So companies yeah. with reason don't want to do it. So because I was on a work visa, I was basically stuck at this company. And uh, in my naivety, I thought, If I work really hard and show them how amazing I am, I'll get what I deserve and stuff like that. The first two years in that company, I basically worked my ass off. I had an amazing reputation in that company for the work that I did. I never saw any significant financial or career rewards for it. Like I mentioned that for most of the time in that company, I was working on a project for Dyson. There was a time, I think about 15 months into my tenure in that company. So that's literally 15 months into my work career. I was practically leading that project. Like in all but name, I was leading both iOS and Android development on that project. And I was being paid like a junior developer. (laughs) And, And like my project manager actually said to me in these words, you're doing a better job than all the contractors we've got on this project. And the contractors were getting paid like 600 pounds a day. And I was like, uh, obviously on a probably a fifth of that, if not less, I can't remember the exact exact figures. So that was a significant contributor to just this feeling of just depression, uh, burnout, frustration. Then the other thing was, I'm not the kind of person that likes to be told what to do. It's something that 
a, a problem I've had ever since I was a kid is I just am not very good at waking up in the morning. Now, it's not something as simple as, oh, why don't you just set your alarm 30 minutes early, which every single manager I've ever had is told me. Like, <laughs> if it was that easy, do you not think I'd have done it yet? Like I can, set, <laughs> I can set six alarms and I'll still sleep through them all. The problem, figure just through experience, is mental, not physiological, because I've never missed an early morning flight ever. And I've taken some really early ones. When I absolutely have to wake up, I can do it. It's just, I don't know what the root cause is, but I'm rubbish at waking up in the morning, which meant that more often than not, if the stand-up meeting was at 9.30 in the morning, I would miss it because I'd get in for 10. And that had no reflection on the work that I was doing. Everyone agreed that the work was stellar. I was not cutting on hours or anything like that. If I was in late, I would work later. It was just that I wouldn't turn up for the stand-up, which I kind of dubbed the ceremony of gratuitousness, just because it was a complete waste of time. And that got me in hot water with senior management. It's just stupid shit like that, that kind of, it was just driving me mad. The combination of all the stuff, no career progression, no financial progression, and then getting shit for basically something superficial to the point where I think after three years in that company, I was on the verge of like, I'm just going to quit and move back to India. I was getting that bad and I love England. Like I love living here. And it had got to that point where I'm like, I'm going to move back to my parents' house in India, which to anyone who knows me really well was like, it would like, okay, things must have got really bad for you to even think about that. But then through sheer dumb luck, <laughs> I managed to get a job at TransferWise. They sponsored my visa for me. I switched there. Again, first year there was fine. Again, because of the visa thing, I went in at a lower salary than my level kind of would have justified. Again, I thought in my naivety, one year I'll show them the job that I can do. And after one year, I'll get the pay rise I deserve. Complete bollocks. After one year, again, everyone's like, my annual review is really good. I have a lot of, uh, I delivered this, I delivered this, I delivered this, I've done this. Yeah, you're going to get your token 10%. That's it, mate. Sorry. It's just like, what does one have to do? And again, I was starting to get shit for the stand up and like, because the company was growing at this time. So when I started working there, they still had quite a loose structure. But after one year, because the company is getting bigger, every owner's, oh, we need to do scrum. We need to do this. We need to do that. Suddenly, the stand-ups were a thing. Here come scrum, the stand-ups. Uh, mm-hmm. Planning poker was a thing. And I'm like, why? It's just such a waste of time. And again, as I just clashing with senior management about all this stuff, like because I was clashing, no career progression, no financial progression. And I'm like, yeah, I can't take this shit anymore. So the moment I got my residency in 2019, the summer of 2019, after five years, I was finally eligible to get permanent residency, which meant I could quit my job and not get kicked out of the country. I was burnt out as hell. I'd never been diagnosed, but I was probably suffering from depression at the time as well, I'd imagine. I was like, I just need to, t- I need to take time off. So I quit my job. I took the rest of 2019 off. I think I quit in August, I think. I checked out long before that, but I quit formally in in August. Took the rest of the year off. Didn't look at code between August and December, which is yeah unheard of, like four or five. I just needed to not look at code. It had got to the point literally where I would open my text editor and my brain would go blank. And it's just a scary feeling when the only thing you've ever been really good at, you can't do anymore. Yeah. Hmm. At that point, I think it was a no-brainer that I had to go freelance. That's the only way I can make a living at this is if I'm not in this corporate system. So I took the rest of the year off, 2020, and like, okay, I want to retrain as web, 
did Rails and then I like got to figure out how to make this freelancing thing work. And yeah, we pretty much tied back to the previous chat we had about how I went freelance. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, thanks. That's a lot there. And I can resonate with quite a few of those things. There's a lot of independent contractors out there that can probably resonate with some of those. Yeah, I hope so. Like the reason I shared it is because I know that hearing other people going through this kind of resonated with me and kind of just made me feel a bit like not alone. Really hope it was him. I think James Buck from 37 Signals, really hope it was him who's written this long blog post on on burnout. Um, But there was someone from 37 Signals who had written this blog post and I read that. I'm like, that makes complete sense. That's exactly what I'm feeling. I can definitely resonate with the feelings of wanting to excel, being trapped by the constraints of you know, the organization that I'm inside of and wanting to do great work, but feeling unable to do so in the way I'd like to, or having wanting rewards that aren't necessarily monetary, but just wanting like being able to work on my own schedule, which is a different kind of reward than being paid more. And it could be both, but as I get better, I'd like to have the kinds of rewards that I want and not just the ones that companies are willing to offer me as an employee. So I totally get that as you develop skills, you're looking to find rewards the way you'd like them, whether that's being able to leave the country for two months, you know, to travel or to shift your working schedule to later in the day or whatever it is, those kind of things are legitimate reasons to work on your own and to sort of skip the formalities or, you know, the standard practice of employer relationships. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, it's about trade-offs, right? So like as a freelance, I kind of trade off some of that security for the freedom. That's a trade-off for me personally. I'm perfectly happy with. It's not for everyone. doesn't have to be, but I think for me it works. And I think also since I went freelance, because I have like side projects and stuff, I don't really look for professional fulfillment in my client work because it's not all my professional work. So like when I was working for a company, because again, I refused to kind of to write code in my spare time because I went down that rabbit hole and I didn't end up in a very nice place and I have a rule that I only write code on work hours. I think a lot of people just expect you to have open source and stuff in your spare time, but I like none of that. I'll write code only for work because I have side projects, which includes open source work now, because again, I have the diversity of work as, as a freelancer. I don't really look for professional fulfillment in my client work. It can be boring work and I'm fine with it because I have a lot of other interesting stuff keeping me occupied. But when I was working for a company, all my programming work was at the company and a lot of programming is just boring. It's just a reality. And that can also leave you a bit disillusioned, I think. Oosh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for sharing your journey and your story. And congratulations on such a successful year with the book and going back into contracting. And, and there's a few things that we didn't even get to, a podcast and being open source core team member. But before we wrap things up, is there any other places that you would like to share or send people that they can find out more about you? Firstly, yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was an absolute blast chatting with both of you. Really good. I'm, I'm glad I could share some of my stories and I hope it resonates with some folks. Yeah, you can find me online, primarily on Mastodon these days, at ayush at ruby.social. Uh, my book's available at railsandhotwirecodex.com. Uh, my freelancing website is radioactivetoy.tech. And I also run scattergun.email, although that's kind of on pause right now until I can sort the billing out because of 
EU VAT, but that's another <laughs> can of worms we haven't got into. But yeah, it will be back to life at some point soon. So keep an eye out if you if you want a privacy-focused mailing list. That's where you want to go. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Ayush. Thank you. Thank you.